Today's shear is generously sponsored by Avi and Ricky Hager in honor of this being Avi's Bar Mitzvah Parsha and also their son Svi's Bar Mitzvah Parsha. Chai The concept of going toward yourself. We always say, you know, go find yourself. And we said, let's take that literally. Literally go find yourself. Meaning, inside of yourself is all the answers you need to life. Inside of yourself is every answer you need. And we took an example. We looked at the, you know, our, our cells as a, uh, as a mashal, but as an example of how our body, implanted in our body, is a message of life. And that's true of all of nature. Uh, you know, it sounds like almost a very, um, you know, a new age idea that, you know, listen to nature and nature gives you advice. But it makes sense. The opening Zohar says, Kol atzmotai tomarna. Uh, the opening Zohar says, that God looked into the Torah and created the entire world. So that means all the patterns, us, nature, it's all going to have the same patterns that the Torah has. It's going to have the same message. might be harder for us to read, but it has the same message. And we looked at how our cells, some of the common characteristics of our cellular function, how it really tells us how to live our lives. And, and that's what we looked at last week. What I wanted to look at was the idea that... Um, you know, this idea, I think, sort of developed from the fact that we're looking at specific indicators that sort of tell us how to live a little bit better, how to uh, try to help improve ourselves, improve the well-being uh, for those around us. And it's interesting, when you look at, try to find the defining elements, what separates people who have achieved greatness in their lives uh, and those who haven't, uh, more often than not, it's you know, attributable, to, attributable to invisible factors things you cannot exactly point to and say, well, it was that, you know? We try looking back, for, for example, in history, we try to find the causes of, for example, the Civil War. But life is much more complex than that. It's usually a combination of elements that happen to come together at the same amount of time that creates opportunities in life, that creates certain successes in life that normally wouldn't have happened. I know Malcolm Gladwell talks about how if... Uh, you know, if Steve, if uh, let's say take Steve Jobs, take Bill Gates, this example is Bill Gates. If Bill Gates was born seven months later, he never would have become Bill Gates because he never would have access to the program, uh, the computer program that he got into, an early research computer program, which was for a uh, an older group. If he would not have, if he would have been born seven months later, he never would have gotten in and never would have had all those free hours of training, which he was able to then hone his skill and figure things out. So small in, small factors all contribute to impact uh, sometimes the magnitude and the level of what shapes us. A lot of it is invisible forces. And um, I like to focus on some of those drivers that distinguish us and give us our strengths and give us our ability to get things done. And this idea of focusing on the unseen, focusing on that which we don't see, is critical for what we've been reading the last few weeks. For example, Lech Lecha Me'artzacha, Avram's told, go from your land to a land which I will show you, Areka, which I will show you. Meaning it's an unknown, right? It hasn't been seen yet. Go to a land that you know is there, but you can't see it. For Avram, a critical component of his development is on that which is not yet seen. Avram is very disturbed by Terach's idols, his father's idols. According to the Medrash, he smashes them. Why? Because Avram's notion of religion, Avram's notion of what it means to live properly in life is with the intangible, not the physical. The physical can't be a deity. Something that you could point to, something that you could touch, cannot be God. There is no godly message uh, in that item. Um, so he smashes, his father's, he smashes his father's idols, and the problem is because he was saying there's got to be something here 
that we can't see. And we know this to be true with love. Love is not something you can point to. You can point to acts of love. You can point to the behaviors that increase love. But when you say, what is love? There is nothing specifically you could point to. There's nothing directly that you could point to. And that's true with many emotions. We, we, we point to actions which manifest those things, but they're not them themselves. It's like a famous, uh, you know, uh, I, I told it once, I told it once in a show about it being a Hasidic Rebbe who went to a samurai. But it was really true of a, a samurai who went to a Hasidic Rebbe. But the original story is a samurai who went to the monk. Uh, the samurai goes to, a, uh, goes to the monk and he says to the monk, you think you're so wise. Tell me where's the gate of heaven and where's the gate to hell? And the monk uh, is sitting there and he's looking up at the samurai and he says to the samurai, um, you know, you're so worthless that you walk around with that sword thinking you're powerful. I'm sure anybody could finish you off. And the samurai reaches into his belt and he begins to take out the sword, lifts up the sword above the head of the monk and the monk looks up and says, that's the gate to hell. Then the samurai puts down the sword back in the sheath of the sword itself and the, samurai, and the monk says to the samurai, that's the gate to heaven. That's the gate to heaven. So it's a powerful message, but it only indicates that there are some things that are just intangible. There are some things that we cannot point to. There are some things that we cannot, we can point to the behaviors, but they're not exactly the emotion themselves. They're not exactly what goodness is or what badness is. They're just behaviors that indicate those ideas. Lot's wife, you know, we read about, we read about last week, Lot's wife, right? She looks back and she turns to a pillar of salt. Why? Why did this happen? So presumably one reason is, the reason what happened is because God was saying, you're not supposed to see this. You're supposed to believe in something that you can't measure. You're supposed to believe in something that's intangible. Stop looking back. It's always about looking and judging and seeing others. Life is often about the things we can't see and often those are the most valuable. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of those powerful messages when you tell, when, when certainly um, younger people are usually bothered, you know, kids in school are usually bothered by the fact that we're trying to serve a God who we can't see. But um, the truth is, we know this in life, that the greatest things in life are all the things we can't see. Like the example I gave of love and certain emotions, you can't see them, point to them. You can't see that at all. You see the behaviors just like you see godly behaviors. And that's what makes them greater, not less greater. If you could see it, it'd be less. And therefore, I'd like to look at the intangible drivers which move us forward. The intangible drivers that move us forward. Again, this idea bears out that Avram fights for a piece of land. Right? He's fighting for a piece of land for Sarah. Why? What's he really fighting over? It's just a land. It could be anywhere else. He's fighting for something again that you can't see. It's a cave. The worth of it, you cannot see. The Zohar talks about how the normal eye looked into this cave and saw nothing. Avram looked into this cave and saw <coughs> eternity in the cave of Maratamach Pele. He saw the whole universe opening up in that one spot. That one spot on earth was the access point to the entire universe. Hebron is from the language of Chibur, to connect. The whole world connects at that one point. And that's what Avram saw there. Again, appreciating things that we normally, we normally could not see. That's what Avram was appreciating. He buys a cave for, you know, a cave, again, that you can't see, the value of which you can't see. And he buys it for his wife, Sarah, who's moving to a world that we can't see. So again, the intangible is a very powerful component to our lives. It's not just about what we can see. It's not just about what we can see. And we tend to think that whatever we can't see isn't real. But on the contrary, those things may in fact be more real um, for us in our lives. I think it's what distinguishes Egypt, right? 
Egypt was very much a world of the physical. It was a world of labor. It was a world of the pyramid. It was a world of what you could build and the worth and the value. That's why when a when a uh, you know Egyptian leader died, he was buried with his treasures, because your worth in the next world was the physical assets that you accumulated, and that was the concept of you know mummifying an individual to try to preserve the physical. The Jewish message to the world at that time was that there is no value. There is limited value, not no value. There's limited value to the physical and it has a short shelf life. At some point we enter into the real world, which is a world of the intangible. Um, that's what the amazing thing is about Shabbos. I mean, every day we operate through commerce and barter and exchange of money and exchange of purchasing and, uh, and activity. On Shabbos, you don't increase. There's no increase. And therefore Shabbos is a day when you appreciate again the intangible elements. You're not adding anything new uh, on the Shabbos itself. Are there physical pleasures on Shabbos? Of course. But the idea is that it's your day to in use the physical world to appreciate that life is much more about the intangible um, than, it is, than it is about the tangible. So again, this was just an introduction to what my main point is today, which is looking at those things in our lives, those drivers, which are the intangible elements in our lives. Okay. Main question is, what is it that allows us to contribute the most in our lives? What allows us to be most effective? So normally we would answer, there's something called the art of achievement. What's the art of achievement? It's a science. If I exercise this many hours, I will be able to be ready for the race coming up. Um, if, I, uh, if I go through the following courses at this school, I'll be able to get this degree and thereby I could better do X and Y. Um, Art of Achievement looks at a series or a collection of tangible, scientific, quantitative things that I need to do in order to get me from point A to point B. And that's true. That's the art of achievement. Someone wants to be the greatest basketball player. You know, it says of Larry Bird. It's a good Musser uh, idea. Larry Bird used to just sit in his backyard as a kid every day, 500 shots. No less, 500 shots. So someone like him might have been born awkward, tall, lanky, and awkward. What made him great was just consistency, 500 every single day. That's the art of achievement. Um, to achieve things in life, you have to go through a certain amount of skill building. That's technical. You got to read the manual. You can watch the YouTube video. You know, you, you got to collect a set of skills in order to get that. I am more interested in what we talk about: the art of fulfillment. That's a totally different parsha. The art of fulfillment, art of achievement. There are books on that. Art of achievement. You could research and find what things I need to do in order to become a great chef. There are specific and tangible ways that I could point to and say that's the art of achievement. But it does not promote in any one specific way the art of fulfillment. Art of fulfillment is a totally different skill set. And unfortunately, we mesh the two together and then we wonder why, you know, well, I just, well, I got this, I just worked hard and I got this, I made this. I put this whole dinner together, I put this whole banquet together, you know, I, I did, you know, I was very successful. How come I don't necessarily feel better afterwards? How come I don't necessarily feel fulfilled? Because it's a different metric system. Art of fulfillment is different than the art of achievement. So what's the difference between somebody who's been given plenty of opportunities, plenty of schooling, um, plenty of, you know, job offers, spend their days in and out of rehab versus 
a lot of people we may know who did not have those opportunities, who did not have those same possibilities, yet live their life in success. Because you could have examples at both ends, by the way. People who have had tremendous opportunity often go on to tremendous success and vice versa. You could have people who've had almost no opportunities compared to what we have. And often we find those people to have great life fulfillment, great life satisfaction, and go on to achieve great success. So many of us would say that your life is dictated by your past, right? Your life is dictated by your past. Most of society believes that, you know, biography is destiny. You're destined to live it over and over. Past equals future. And it does if you choose to live there. If you choose to stay living there, then your past does equal yes and yes. But what's great success? So I switched it from success to fulfillment. But no, but you said to achieve great, great. To achieve fulfillment, I should use fulfillment. Those who achieve fulfillment in their life, those who achieve a life where they say, "I feel good about what I'm doing. I feel fulfilled about what I'm doing." That and that's the success. That's the success. There are people who achieve tremendous success who always are negative about themselves and feel they have no fulfillment. What I've done is worthless. They say Winston Churchill. Uh, lived his life in utter darkness. I mean, he, he had done amazing things as far as world leaders go, and he lived his life every single day in, in darkness uh, because he had this depression. Whether it was chemical or not, we don't know. But uh, but there are people who you know do great things, but again, they're missing in the world of in the world of fulfillment, while they may have in the world of achievement. So again, your past is one way to dictate whether you have fulfillment or not because. It's up to you to choose whether you live there or not. There's a great Gemara in Shabbos, 156a, where it says that Avram comes and says to God, God, I looked at my constellations. I looked at what it says in the stars is what's supposed to be with my life. And in there, I have nothing. I have no children after me. I have nobody to continue my legacy. And God says the great line, Ein mazel There's no mazel for Yisrael. It doesn't mean we have no luck. It means a mazali Yisrael means we are not you're not dictated by any pre-written constellations. You're not bound by any horoscope that someone may tell you. Your past does not dictate. Meaning, what was Avram's fear? Avram's fear was that he had this whole past raised in his father's house uh, of idolatry and darkness, and Avram was perpetually afraid throughout his life that it would one day come back to haunt him. You you tried to escape your past as best as possible, but God was telling Avram, "Say me'itz don't live there. If you live under your stars, you're right. Your past dictates your biography. It will. Your biography will dictate your life, 100%. But if you're, it's a great line. Get out from under those stars. If you step aside for a moment from under those stars, then you're no longer dictated by what its message is telling you. You're no longer dictated by what has been written for you you can rewrite it. That was the message to Avram, which I think all of these messages which are said to our fathers and our mothers are messages for generations to come. It's Maisa Avot Simon Lebanon. Whatever happened to the Avos is a, is, a, is a message to get. So decision is the ultimate power, the ability to make a decision. It's, you know, at the end of the Torah, we're told, God says, I put in front of you blessing and curse. Choose life. Choose life. Meaning God puts in front of us all possibilities. We're asked to make decisions. Those decisions affect, affect the trajectory of our life. Why does it, uh, Dr. Phil has this, uh, it, it, it's a little simple, but it's interesting to try on your own. Dr. Phil says our entire lives are dictated by um, five, uh, 10 critical choices, 
five, I don't remember the numbers, make up the numbers, seven pivotal people, seven, <laughs> five, ten critical choices, seven crucial people, and five pivotal choices, uh, it, it, uh, pivotal events, right? Ten choices, people, and events. Those things dictate your life. So when you map it out, what are all those things? You get to really the screenplay for your entire life and what you've become. So then that dictates exactly what you're going to do, and it's your job to audit that and take the things you like and get rid of the things you don't like what those things have done to you, what those critical people in your life or those pivotal people have done to you or for you and decide whether you want to keep those elements or not. It's an interesting study to do on the self, um, but that's the idea. Decision is ultimately the ultimate power. It's a Jewish concept. It's a Jewish concept. The decision is in our hands. That's why free will is such a crucial topic. Why is, who cares if you have free will or not? We walk around as though we have free will. What's the difference? You know, Skinner at Harvard tried to deny the concept of free will. Everything's in our genes, everything's in our DNA. There's nothing you could do. It's a huge philosophical debate, the nature of free will. So what's the difference? We make decisions anyways. I mean, we, we live our lives day to day because if you understand free will and that we have free will, then decision is the ultimate power. That's why it's so critical. It's critical that we have the ability to choose or else then what's, what's it all worth? Then what can you do with your life? You're meant to just live the patterns that life has set for you. So now, decisions shape our destiny. Decisions shape the direction that we go on. So it seems from Chazal, and I saw this, a similar idea in the Svasemes, the Ger Rebbe, that there are three components that go into any decision we make. There are three components that go, on to, go into any decision we make. One, Asaph. What's Esav? Esav is the first component of any decision. It is what do we choose to focus on? What do we choose to focus on? Esav, sitting there in the forest, option in front of him, sell the birthright or get myself some soup. What's more important to me right now? He chose to focus on its importance right now at this moment. It was a decision. What am I going to focus on? Right now or something in 10, 20, 40, 50 years? So one of the critical components to any decision that we make is a decision of what we want to choose to focus on. Is something that happens to me, is that an indication of the beginning of something coming or is that an indication of something ending in my life? That's all a matter of focus. You can look at the same situation from two different vantage points. Right? Beautiful, I heard a phrase about Steve Jobs. Right, Steve Jobs was given, was given away as a child, right? His parents didn't want him. They left him literally at a doorstep. The average kid could look at that event and say, I was abandoned. Steve Jobs looked at that event and says, I was chosen. I was chosen by my next parents. They chose to have me. See, it's, it's what you choose to focus on. Many people have chosen to look at a situation like that and say, I was abandoned. I'm worthless. No one wants me. Or, um, I, I mean, I, I meet people all the time who received tzedakah, who are at the hand of tzedakah. And you'll see how they choose to look at that situation differently. I remember someone here in the LA community who has since passed away. So I'll get to him in a moment. Often a person who has received tzedakah looks at themselves as being worthless, incapable. Incapable of doing anything because they're reliant on the benefit of others. I remember someone from Los Angeles who for many years was reliant on the charity of others. And when he said to himself, I hope that one day I can get to the point where I'm the one giving out charity to others. And he worked hard, he worked hard. I remember he kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. 
and he got to the point where um, near the end of his life, further in, um, he became very successful. doesn't happen across the board, but I know his attitude went a long way. That was his attitude all the time. I remember, I remember, I remember him saying every time he used to come around the high school here in L.A., he goes, one day I'm going to be giving out all the tzedakah in the community. He kept saying that to himself. And it's, it's just a focus. It's often just, it's often, not always, but it's often just a focus shift. A lot of times what makes the difference in the decisions we make is what we choose to focus on. You could look at it as an event and say, wow, that's a challenge for me. Or you look and say, that's an impossible hurdle for me. It's the great story of the Baal Shem Tov. Oh, the Baal Shem Tov is an amazing story of a um, hundred people all trying to get to the palace of the king. They're all trying to get to the palace of the king. And there's like 35 walls in between the king. In between, we call it seven. Seven's a good round number for Kabbalah. There's seven walls in between the people and the uh, and the gate, right? Let's call it 49 people. It's also better for Kabbalah. 49 people and seven gates in between where the people are and getting to the to the to the you know to the kingdom. And the the story just gets you know it gets more elaborate and elaborate. And I'll skip the whole story, but how each person gets through each wall. The first wall, 35 people drop off the wayside. They can't do it. Next wall is a wall of ice. Next wall is a wall of you know swords. And one person found a way to climb through it. Story is very colorful and vivid, and there's different variations depending on the tradition it took from the Baal Shem Tov down to us today. The main point of the story is the final soldier gets there, so to speak, to the court of the king. And the king says, how'd you get through all seven walls? He says, because I woke up one morning and I looked back and I realized there are no walls. There are no walls. And the point of that story is that there were the walls, the walls were there. But the point is we create walls for ourselves because we focus on the negative elements of things and we keep playing that message. We talk about playing that message over in ourselves and letting it define our script that we can't move forward. We can't do anything. We are incapable and therefore we create walls that are stronger uh, than the ones that are there. So I think the first element of, of making a decision is the question of what you choose to focus on. Number two, the second element of a decision is as the Rambam says, what does it mean to you? Why is a miracle called a nace? Why is a miracle called a nace? The word nace in Hebrew comes from a banner. Nesayon is a banner. Why? Because a miracle holds up a banner of God's relevance, of God's hand in this world. And the Ramban says, Nachman, and he says, the only value of a miracle is the message it gives to us. What do I do now? What does it, what does it mean to me? What do I read into this? Right? What do I read into this? Is this God punishing me? Is this the roll of the dice or is God calling me to rise up? So the first issue, the first factor that goes into making a decision is what am I going to choose to focus on? Am I going to focus on the good? Am I going to focus on the bad? I forgot which comedian. Comedian has a whole routine about how we love complaining. We probably complain to this generation more than any other, but we don't realize what it means to be able to just, you know, even take the phone, the examples of the phones of, you know, I remember how annoying you would get when you try to dial the zero, right? How far you go to the zero at the bottom if someone's a zero and they have to turn the dial. Now just the ease of having a cell phone, of getting in a car, of getting on a plane, how quickly and all these things we take for granted. So what we choose to focus on, something called broken tile syndrome. What's broken tile syndrome? You're lying in bed and you look up and you have a beautiful ceiling, but there's that one tile that's broken and it drives you crazy. 
So why are you looking at that one tile when you have all the other tiles that are in the right place? There's one missing, but we choose to, that's what do you choose to focus on? That's number one. Number two, what does it mean to me? What's the message it's sending? Some people could see the same event and read it different ways. When the Russians, who were the first ones in space, right? They were the first ones who got to outer space. The Russians go there and uh, I forgot the, the first one who was, the, I forgot his name, the, 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 you know, the head of that crew. Um, Yuri, Yuri Garden, right. Yuri Garden Yuri gets up there and he says, um, I look around and I see just only space. I see no God here, right? When the Americans got up there, Buzz Aldrin turns around and says, I see God everywhere here. So it was the same space that they were in. They were both in the same spot. It was just, what does it mean to you? What does the event mean to you when you look at it? Number three, the third factor that goes into a decision is what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now that I know this, what am I going to do? Time goes so fast. What am I going to do? So the, meaning I would say it like this. There's no point in having a vision if you're not going to do anything about it. God does not show another a vision for the purpose of showing a vision. It's always for Lamaisa. That's a Jewish view. It's, you know, show me the money. What, what's the bottom line? Why? What's the purpose? There's no just spiritual events for the, for the sake of spiritual events. If it doesn't make me better, then there's no relevance. If it doesn't get me to do something different in my life, then there's, it's waste. It's a wasted moment. It's why by the Az Yashir, right away when the Jews crossed the water, they had to sing a song. Why they had to sing a song? They had such a spiritual epiphany at that moment, but it could have been worthless if it wasn't translated into something. So they put it into a song. It's a worthless event. There's no spiritual event for the sake of a spiritual event in Judaism. Other cultures and other religions value the transcendent experience. Wow, I'm transcending. That's why you should feel less frustrated when you have a davening without kavana. Let's say you don't feel it. You want to feel it. You want to feel the angels knocking you over and your life changed forever. But you didn't, and you're all frustrated. Judaism says, that's great. We all want to feel that. But that's less relevant than you walking out of davening saying, you know what? I'm going to help someone on the way back home from Shul. That's Kavana, according to Judaism. That's the angels knocking you over in Judaism. It's not that feeling that we hope to feel, which is so subconscious and fleeting, maybe based on the fact that the weather was perfect outside and there was no one in our way as we got up the stairs to our section and then there was, and we had our seat. It's a, that feeling is a combination of external factors way out of our control. But the decision to leave davening and say, okay, I just read about the fact that God is Gomel Chasadim, bestows goodness, I want to bestow goodness, then you know your tefillah made a difference. Not the other stuff. The other stuff we hope, we all want that. But that's icing on the cake. That's, that's extra. That's something else entirely. So now, these decisions are critical. And making decisions are three components. As we said, it's Esav, what did he choose to focus on? Number two, Ramban's definition of a nisayon, a nase, a banner. What does it mean to me? What's the interpretation? And number three, what am I going to do about it? The lamaisa, the idea of what really is kavana in davening. Lamaisa, what am I going to do about it? These decisions not just shape our lives. When we make good decisions, we change the history of the world, right? Because one woman said, I'm deciding not to sit in the back of the bus. She changed history in America forever. She changed, not just for her life. She might have been annoyed for her own life, but in her decision, she changed America. In her decision, she changed America. And that's the power of our decision. Have you ever seen a video? You can see a video online of this guy, Nick, uh, Nick Vujicic. Um, amazing individual. He's an Australian. He was born with some rare disorder where he has no limbs. And his video is called Teaching People How to Get Up. 
It's amazing. I mean, he talks, he goes around the country speaking to people who don't have these disorders, people like us, showing us how to get up. And his whole illustration is how does someone like him get up without legs, without arms, without anything, and suddenly he's up. It's, 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 most power, it's the most powerful video, and he's a great world speaker. Someone like him made a decision that I'm not just going to sit my life in the corner of a room stuck. I'm going to empower other people around the world. And that's, it's, it's, it's an amazing, again, it's decisions. It's one person's notion of making a decision different than some. Most people in his situation have not made the decision that he just made. They have not made that decision, primarily because they don't believe a decision is powerful enough to change other people's lives. We don't believe it. We can't imagine it. We're skeptical. We don't believe, uh, we don't believe it. We don't believe that it could do it. Now, let's take this one step further. What then drives us, right? It's a combination of factors, what we choose to focus on, what does it mean to us, and what do we want to do with it. But what's really driving us beneath the surface, says Rav Tzadik HaKon of Lublin, the great Hasidic Rebbe. He says, people think it's desires that drive us. And he says, Yesh There are many desires in the world that people continuously seek, right? Taivos mamon, taivos achila, money, food, all of that. He says, but at a certain point, that all runs out, right? It's called in psychology the hedonist cycle. Once you get used to a certain type of vacation, you need to raise the bar, and then you can never keep outdoing. So it begins to lose its effect because you keep moving the bar, moving the bar, and then you lose the value. He says, rather, desires are never our goals because once you hit the goal and fulfill your desire, you're, you're like, is that all there is? Rather. We are driven instead, says Rav Tzadok HaKohen, and Rav Dessler says the same thing. We are driven by a collection of our emotions. We are driven by our needs. Uh, we are driven by basic human needs. That's what drives us to make these decisions. Okay. I want to finish up this year on these critical needs that we all have. And I'm going to show you something which I believe really is, I think of all the shirim so far, I think might be the most important piece that we've discussed uh, to this point. There are basically Chazal and Rav Dessler and other great Rabbanim, Rav Volbi, have put together basically six needs. I know that uh, there's Maslow put together his variation of six, some have five, there are different lists. But the idea is the same nonetheless. And once you understand these six needs, you understand yourself and you understand the people around you. And almost all conflict that you have with anybody can be boiled down to a misunderstanding how we're wired differently as far as our needs. So number one, number one, starts from Vamidbar Perik Yodalit. And the Jewish people are very nervous. They're complaining, they're very nervous. And they say we should go back to Egypt. Habli and Kfarim b'Mitzrayim, where there are not enough graves in Egypt. Let's go back there. Let's stop this madness and let's go back there. How could they go back there? Don't they remember what their lives were like? I was at a shiva this week that somebody who is uh, his family is still in Iran, right? He says this is the mentality of people in Tehran. They live now with wealth. They're doing well by and large. But they don't realize, when you're in the situation, you don't realize that, um, you know, they don't understand that they're being used as a pawn against Israel. They don't understand that. And in a moment, the government could take everything away. They could hit, delete, and everything they have is gone. And is that a life to live like that? Is that a life? But people choose it because it's certain. 
And that's the first need. People want certainty. They want to know that they can be comfortable, that they can avoid pain, and everything can be certain. How do you preserve certainty? And that's what the Jews were afraid of. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Why did they want to go back? By the way, Rav Shmuel Maliver says, why did the waters have to close back after the Jews went across? So that no one thinks to go back again. So they couldn't go back. Why did they want to go back? Because it was certain there. They woke up. They knew they had to build at 5 a.m. They went to bed at night at 10 p.m. Schedule was the same every single day. They knew where they were going to be every single day. There was no freedom. There was no independence. There was no freedom to pursue their faith. But you know what? It was certain. And how do we gain certainty? We, can, we gain certainty in our lives either by controlling someone, smoking something, right? Doing something that we know is safe. It's always there for us. It's certain. A meal is always going to be there for us. It provides us certainty. It's always there. The catch-22 with certainty is after a while... If you get total certainty in every area of your life, you get bored and out of your mind. That's why Kaddish Baruch Hu put in us a second primary need. And the second primary need is the need for variety, uncertainty, the element of surprise. That was the main Jewish complaint about the manna. What was their complaint? It could taste like whatever you want. But it was the same experience every day. So the very same people who wanted to go back to a certain life in Egypt craved variety again we remember the cucumbers and the vegetation and the watermelon things look different to us we all have an innate need for a sense of variety uh for a sense of variety in our lives um and you know it's like it, it, it's like why you can't you can't see the same you can't see the same movie over and over you, you will always need to do something different to go different places do different experiences number three the third basic need that we need in our lives this comes out from Rav Levi Yitzchak Berdichev. Rav Levi Yitzchak Berdichev says, what are we dancing on Simchas Torah? What are we dancing for in Simchas Torah? Right? We're dancing. Oh, thank God. We're all celebrating. Thank God we have 613 more laws. More. Imagine that. In any other legal system in the world, who takes the Declaration of Independence, starts running around, you know, starts running around with you know, the Bill of Rights and Constitution. You don't dance with the Constitution. You don't dance with the Magna Carta. What, what, are, we, what are we dancing with our body of law? Says Rav Levi Yitzchak Berdichev, because the law says God trusts us to keep it. That's why we're dancing. We dance and we smile and we celebrate because the message that the law has is that we are chosen for a special mission. We are trusted that we can do all of this. Although it may seem daunting, it may seem overwhelming, we can actually keep all of this. And that gets us to our third need, which is the need to feel significant, the need to feel special, the need to feel unique. Um, and there are different ways we could do that. We could do that in a positive and a negative way. Um, we could do that through more spirituality, more education, more, um, you know, more te teaching ourselves something different, getting involved in an organization. Or we could do it in a disempowering way, in a negative way. Um, what do you do if you have no education, you have no resources, nobody give you a job? How do you feel significant? Sometimes violence. If I pull out a gun on somebody, I could be the king of the hood. I could be the king of the hood. And that, in many instances, gives me significance. And when I do that and people know they're going to respond right away, violence is a way to get to significance. Each one of these needs have positive and negative ways to get to them and meet them in our lives. Number four, number four, 
we'll leave out five and six because we're running out of time. Uh, you know, I'll mention them quickly. Number four is the need for connection and love, the most basic element. It's why the Maral says the importance of going to shul. Everyone thinks the importance of going to shul is, you know, because it's something to be davening while there's a minion there or davening. Maral says got nothing. Maral says the whole value of it is coming together, is the sense that we need a sense of connection. You can't be... No man is an island. We need each other. That's the notion of a charusa. That's the notion of partnering up with somebody, of working with other people. The value of a committee. It's it's more not so much about the efficiency of getting something done as it is about building a connection, about building a rapport. Uh, the Gemara's in Brachos Yud Zion talk about the value of haftalarecha kamocha, loving others. That's a very it's one of the most important values in Judaism. Mishnayis and Pirkei Avos, the love of God to Israel is one of our most important values because again we crave this sense of love, this sense of connection that we each need in our lives. We can't live without it. It's water for ourselves, and we can't live without it. The last two needs on the six uh, on the six um, that I think comes out from Kazal are um, are needs of the spirit, and I think in many ways that's where real fulfillment comes from. It's the sense that we're always growing. It's the message of Lech Lecha. It's the message of the angels in Yaakov. That even after all those years in the house of Lavan, after all those years in such a terrible house, it says that Yaakov runs into angels. What, why does it tell us that he runs into angels? So the fact that he dreamt of angels by the ladder before he got to the house of Lavan, after all those years in a Beit Midrash, of course he was dreaming of angels. What else are you going to dream of? That's what you do night and day. But the fact that he was still dreaming of angels after he left the house of Lavan meant that he never stopped growing. And that was the path of the mothers and the fathers. They always were moving. They always were progressing. They always trying to elevate. Growth is a critical need that all of us have in some level and contribute. We need to all contribute. Life is not just about me. We need to be able to give in some way about contribution. So I think the message is as follows. We talked today about making decisions. Decisions affect our fulfillment in life, making decisions. How do we make decisions? It's about what we choose to focus on, what does it mean to us, and what are we then going to do about it? Those decisions are driven by these six basic needs, these six basic emotions that Kazal tell us are in all of us. Those basic emotions could be fulfilled in a positive or a negative way. So now bottom line, what do you do with all this? What you do with this is gold, why? Now for yourself, if something is bothering you and you can't figure out why you're so annoyed or what's really bothering you, you figure out what are your top two or three needs on the list of the six needs. What type of person are you? If you're a person who number one for yourself is significance, well then you know that if something is making, making you feel insignificant, that's the problem. You're able to identify the problem. In a relationship, it helps the partner to know this. If the person you're with understands that what's number one on your list is not what's number one on their list, you then could communicate better because the language is slightly different. What makes one person feel empowered is totally different than what makes the other person feel empowered. And the other person doesn't realize it because they're operating from their own needs, which are number one. They're thinking from a place where variety is number one for them, while the other person is operating from a place where significance is number one for them. And you also then are able to identify what a person's greatest fears are. What a person's greatest fears. You now know what a person's greatest fears. It takes years before couples figure out, ah, I understand why this keeps making you upset. I understand why this is one of your greatest fears in life. I never understood what's the big deal. Every time I, this is what makes such a big deal to you, you now understand why it's a big deal because it, it you know, there's a statement from Ravolbi. Um, Ravolbi talks about how um, there are certain things that uh, trigger men and women 
right? He says certain things that trigger men and women. He says, for example, men tend to do this, right? Men tend to say, what's the difference if we have a few more people for Shabbos? What's the difference, right? He says, what's the difference, right? People just want to come, what's the difference? Ravolbi says, men always do that. What's the difference, right? And that tends to, says Ravolbi, remember, it could go the opposite as well, but it tends to make women upset. Men read that as, men often read that, says Ravolbi, as they're not being as generous and giving as we men are. Now, vice versa. Ask the men to do something, you know, with work and detail for their guests, the men will say, who needs it, right? So now what's happening over here? It says Ravolbi, and now these are generalizations, but it's playing into the basic human needs. Ravolbi says what's playing into it is that one of the areas of significance, one of the areas of significance is that the table should be nice and the guests should feel comfortable. That is often how a woman feels significant while she is there. The man sense of significant comes. I'm the king, I got all these people, I got the people coming in and going, coming and going. They're just no one's more generous than the other. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just understanding how it's stepping on each person's basic need for how we go through life. And that's often what conflict is all about. When you have a conflict with anybody, take anybody in the marketplace, a friend in the community, a conflict with anybody, instead of trying to resolve it where I have to give in in this, and they should, that's the old way we resolve things. If I give in a little and say, you just do it, or this and that, that'll resolve it. It's got nothing to do with the problem. The resolution comes, says Rav Dessler, from understanding the underlying need that's being hurt, that's being touched by what you did. That's why we think we solve something when we say, okay, fine, you take it. I'm letting you take it. What, are you still complaining? Wait, that wasn't the issue. The issue was you stepped on some greater need and you have not restored it. And by giving the object back to the other person or paying for the damage to the car or whatever it was that the conflict was about, you haven't resolved a single thing. And therefore, looking at life in this way and looking how our decisions are made and what goes behind our decisions, we take ourselves to a more powerful and empowering place within our development as Yerushimayim, as God-fearing good Jews. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.